Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Thank you. Good to be here. I hope you can hear me okay. My name is David Green, and I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. I've been sober by the grace of God since August 8th of 1994, and for that I am truly grateful. I am uh, very grateful to be here with you guys this weekend. Uh, Good to be here at the request of my sponsor, Mike M. Good to see him on the call today and uh, a lot of my friends from out in the East Coast as well. I want to thank the committee and everybody that has uh, planned for this. I mean, it's it's a tough time during the pandemic for everybody. So to put this on has just been amazing. I always like to say uh, whenever I do one of these, that speaking is the easiest thing to do as you show up and speak. A lot of times I think the misconception is that the speakers are the main event. But this, for me, it's the work that goes on behind this. So I want to thank you for that very much. My home group is the Lowell Big Book Study Group out of Lowell, Massachusetts, and uh, I'm very grateful to be a part of that via Zoom uh, has made that possible. It's a lot of men who have been through the work in the first nine steps and practice steps 10, 11, 12 to the best of their ability today. I have been through this process of the work with the loving God and the big book sponsor, Mike M. I have experienced the first nine steps as outlined in the book. I have made all of my amends, but one amends, and I do try to practice 10, 11, and 12 as a new way of life today. I've been in the fellowship for a long time and uh, very grateful for the sobriety and the recovery that I've had through the years. So it's very good to be here. I'm a little nervous and uh, it's been quite some time since I've done this. So thank you again for having me. I'd like to start out with a little clean humor, if I could, a little joke. Uh, There was a lady that uh, came out of a convenience store and she's seen an ordinary funeral going on. There were two hearses back to back, and there was a line of women walking. One was leading a dog in in the very front, and she found it to be very strange. And so she approached the lady that was walking the dog, and she said, Hey, I really am sorry to interrupt you during this discomforting time, but I just need to ask. This is the strangest thing I've ever seen. What's going on? And so the lady said, Well, my husband was an alcoholic, and he was very abusive, and he was very mean. And uh, he uh, attacked me the other night and jumped me, and when he did, my dog that I just got a few days ago, jumped on him and killed him. Well, my brother-in-law jumped in and tried to help him out. The dog jumped and killed him as well. And so the lady from the convenience store thought for just one minute. And she said, is there any chance I could borrow that dog for just a couple of days? The lady said, get in line. So a lot of us can relate to that. I'm sure on both sides, that's the way I grew up. I grew up with an alcoholic. It was very abusive. Uh, there was a lot of abuse from the time that I was little until I was about 15 years old, until I permanently put a stop to that one day in a fit of anger. I struck him with it with a stick of wood, and uh, it just took his life. And uh, so, you know, he did live past that blow, but he, but he lived differently for a while, and then eventually he ended up dying. And uh, so I can relate to being abused as a child. I mean... I mean, we've heard so many speakers speak this weekend, and man, what a great lineup of speakers you guys have had. How do you follow something like that? I'm very grateful to uh, my brother, Josh A., who spoke yesterday morning. This is a guy that's been very instrumental in my recovery, so I want to I want to thank Josh for his share and for his service and for all the work that he does with the men. He has had an experience through this work that was life-changing, and he shares it with a lot of people, and it's very instrumental for me. So anyway, uh, that was kind of my childhood. I just uh, grew up and there was a lot of abuse in every area of life from that man and some older brothers and, and until I, like I said, until I got to the age to where I could put a stop to that. Now, I can remember the morning that I struck him in the head with a stick of wood and it cut him open and began to bleed ferociously and, uh, you know, fell to his knees. And I remember my mother coming out that morning crying and, and probably traumatized, I'm sure, looking back on it now. But I remember she said to me that day, you need to leave or I'm going to call the law. And one thing that really struck me that day is I, she had watched me 
go through the abuse I went through for years with that man and never did she ever try to call the law or anything like that. So one of the things that I did is I copped a resentment that day that lasted for many years to come whenever it came to women. The two things that I promised myself that day is one that no man would ever put his hands on me in that way again, as long as I lived. The other is that I would never trust a woman as long as I lived again. And that led to a lot of trouble in my life, out of recovery as well as into recovery. I walked to a nearby park that day because I knew that I was probably going to be going to jail for some time. And uh, there was a man there that day that introduced me to something other than alcohol. And that's a whole story by itself. I respect singleness of purpose, and I'm not here to talk about that. But I can tell you that that was a part of my story. And that's something that led me to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous a whole lot quicker than it probably would have had, had that experience not happened. So for the next several years, what I did, you know, was what we do. I drank, I abused people. I did what had been done to me. I hurt, you hurt. That was just kind of the motto. I ended up going to jail very early in life. Spent a lot of time in jails here in Southeast Oklahoma and different places, Indiana, a lot of different places. I was a traveling drunk. You know, I would start to drink. I would no telling where I ended up. I ended up in uh, Bloomington, Indiana one time, a blackout. And, uh, Man, what a story that was, you know, lived in a boxcar for a while. And I tell you all that not to impress you or any of that, but I, I do like to qualify as an alcoholic. I would like to get out of that part of my story and get into the recovery because I have spent a lot of years in the fellowship. So I met a young lady from Indiana. She was living in Texas, and uh, I ended up getting together with her, and uh, we had two children together, two boys. The first one was born on December 22nd of 1987. She had been there all day. The insanity hit my mind that day. I didn't know it at that time. As described in chapter three of our book, the insanity came to mind. I stepped out to have a drink. It was January the 2nd before I made it home after taking that drink. My mind convinced me we was going to have one drink. That was it. We was going back in. But of course, not knowing what I know now, I triggered a physical allergy within myself and it set up a craving beyond my mental control and I just could not stay. I had to go. And uh, so I missed that entire event. So less than a year later, you know, I'm in a, a detox center for the second time by this time. My youngest son had came along and I missed that entire event because, you know, that they were giving me fluids and giving me meds and trying to pump the stuff out of my system that was in there. I can remember it was an old Indian nation hospital. I'm from the Indian territory here in Oklahoma. I'm a member of the Choctaw Nation tribe. I'm very proud of my heritage. I'm very proud of my tribe. They have done a lot of good for me in my life as well as other people. So anyway, we, uh, I can remember being there and I can remember seeing those old men in those days. There wasn't a whole lot of privacy in those types of hospitals. And I can remember seeing those old men laying in that bed with livers hanging over and, and they were just sick as they could be yelling in the face and the eyes. And it just, and I can remember thinking to myself, I'll never be like that. It, it won't ever get that bad for me. If it ever does, I'll quit. And, uh, I talked the doctor into letting me go under the illusion that I would stay sober and I would try to do what I could to stay clean and do the things that he had suggested. But one thing he suggested before I left is that he would give me a prescription of abuse. Now he told me what would happen to me if I drank on this stuff. So under the good doctors, uh, what he advised, I left in less than a week, the insanity returned to the mind, convinced me he was a liar. She had put him up to it and that it would be okay for me to take a drink. Now, based on everything that he had told me that was going to happen to me and me knowing all of this, I drank anyway. And when I did, it triggered something far more than an allergic reaction that day. I tell you, I uh, suffered many of the effects that he talked about and even some more. I just about died from that experience. But convincing myself that it really wasn't that bad if I would drink milk, if I'd do this, if I'd take Gatorade or extra vitamins or whatever, I could get that abuse out of my system. And that's what I proceeded to do. I started trying to get sober shortly after that because, you know, I, there I was in trouble with my wife at the time, uh, you know, marriage going downhill. Everybody knows the story. Running from the law, they had caught up to me again. And this time I was getting ready to go to jail again for a long time this time. And uh, so we made a break and we left for Bloomington, Indiana, and we got out there. And that's where all of that began. I spent two years out there on the streets because as soon as we got there, the first time I drank, she left me. And I knew she was going to because she had told me, she had told me over and over and over, but the insanity hit the mind one more time and told me that, no, she'll be here just like she always was. I bought into the lie, took the drink, I triggered the allergy, I was gone again. And this went on endlessly 
I spent two years out there in the cold, extreme cold that we've had here for a few days in Oklahoma is one thing, but it seemed to be every day out there. And uh, I lived in that. And uh, that's kind of the way that my life started to begin. You know, I would live in boxcars. I would live in homeless shelters anywhere that I could. But always, always, I would find a way to drink. Always. Insanity returned to the mind. I'd sell plasma from my body. I'd do whatever I needed to do to drink alcohol. And it's just something that I absolutely loved more than I loved life, more than I loved kids, more than I loved anything. Uh, if love was enough to get me sober, I would have got sober in 1987 when my first son was born because I loved him with all my heart. 19, what's that, 88, a year later, you know, I would have sobered up then because my second son came along. But anyway, long story short, I ended up back in Oklahoma. The kids stayed there. And shortly after that, I convinced her to let them come back because I'd wreaked so much havoc in her life and I had had done some pretty bad things to one of the guys she was beginning to date and try to change her life. And her question was, what can I do to get you out of my life? And I said, well, you're going to have to give me the kids. And she wasn't going to do that. Obviously, I'm a drunk. I'm, but she did agree to let them come with my mom. So they come for a few months to Oklahoma and things got way worse real quick and uh, ended up in a car wreck that about killed them both. And my mother got them and took them back to her. They met up at some halfway point with no court papers being drawn up. She was able to take the kids back. There was nothing I could do. Out of fear and resentment and anger, I, I felt myself that I should have killed my mother back whenever I'd done what I'd done to that man. I should have got her that day, too, is what was going in my mind. And with absolutely no alcohol in my body that day, I lit her house on fire and almost burned her to death. And so uh, she come out of that, and our relationship changed forever until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. So, there again, it was a long time thereafter before I showed up to the doors of AA. But when I did, what had happened was, you know, I, there one more time, you know, I'm looking to go to prison and uh, I'm going to spend a long time this time and I know it. And so I escaped to the mountains, which are the Jack Fork Mountains here in the southern hills of Oklahoma. And it's a pretty insane place to go. I mean, if you're an outlaw, it's a great place to be. But if you're not, it is not safe for you to come in there. They've shot down planes and stuff like that. They run me off in less than a week. I got drunk on moonshine whiskey, went into a blackout, burnt half the mountain down in a fire. And, uh, oh, it was terrible. You know, how do you get kicked out of somewhere like that? Well, set half that mountain on fire and draw the National Guard into you, and that will do it. And that did it. And they were ready to kill me. So what happened was I went down the backside of that mountain, and I ended up with a bunch of full-blood Indians down at the Choctaw Nation Recovery Center. Now, it wasn't my first attempt to go down there. I'd been there before. I'd been there uh, to the old Indian hospital when I detoxed at one time. And, you know, a couple of them had come in and tried to talk to me, but I thought this was all about Jesus, and I didn't want to hear any of it. So I wasn't listening to anything they had to say. But this time I was pretty scared, and this time I knew what was going to happen to me. I had people that wanted to kill me. I had the law coming to get me, and I needed a place to go, and there was no better place than to get in with those guys, and that's what ended up happening to me. They took me in. They kept me for about six weeks. And uh, it had been a couple of years at that time since I'd seen my kids. So one of the things that they did was they started teaching me their ceremonial ways. They started teaching, you know, about the Sundances. They taught me about the sweat lodges, which is something that I absolutely love. Even to this day, I still participate in those practices quite often. I have found my connection with God there. I have found a way to be with my creator in a way that I can't be anywhere else. So I absolutely love that ceremony. But one of the men was Alcoholics Anonymous. And he had had eight, he had eight years of sobriety at that time. And he was a big book man. And he knew what he was talking about when it came to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he set me down shortly after I left there. Now I stayed there, like I said, for about six weeks, I kind of got my house in order as best that I could for the first time in my life. My ex-wife, I'd been writing her letters. She had a grandfather that was in the program, so she knew that the program worked. So the deal was if I stayed in the program, I stayed sober, and I tried to work it as best I could, she would let me see my boys. So by the grace of God, before I left there, she brought them. I was able to make amends to those two boys as best I knew how that day. Now, I didn't know a whole lot about amends other than saying I'm sorry. Turns out there's a whole other process other than a sincere apology, which I did make that day, thank God, because... It wasn't uh, less than a year later that the youngest one would drown in Lake Monroe, Indiana. It'd be the last time that I'd ever seen him was the day that he came to the center. And uh, <clears throat> so I'm very grateful that I took the opportunity and I followed the direction of some men that day. I ended up 
leaving there. And uh, the one thing that the counselor told me, now I drawn, I was very drawn to the man who was savvy in the big book. He spoke my kind of language in a way that, that none of the rest of them really did. I mean, they understood drinking and the other things that went on. But he had the solution, and I knew it. And he's described on page 18 of our book. And uh, he is the man with the real answer. And so, you know, I ended up using that man for a long time to come. Uh, he was my very first sponsor in AA. He led me through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I had an experience that was life-changing. Now, this happened a year later after I left there. I was in a lot of trouble in my mind in the fellowship, and I was going absolutely insane, sitting in meetings go to meetings and just don't drink. I'm dying in the rooms. I can't stop it. And, uh, you know, I'm ready to put a pistol to my head and I haven't had a drink of alcohol in close to a year. So this man picks me up. He begins to take me through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, describe the problem, the solution, and the action steps that's necessary in order to stay in that solution. And uh, I had an experience that was life-changing. I did there again, my youngest son drowned by the grace of God. I was able to stay sober through that. I came back and got the other one. And, uh, you know, he spent a lot of time with me. Thank God his mother was open enough to let him do that. And eventually, you know, as time went on and I stayed sober in the fellowship, he came to me uh, with me to live when he was uh, 10 years old. And I raised him from then all the way until he was old enough to move out on his own. So the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, you people did all of that for me. Now, I had been in the fellowship for some time and uh, had really began to understand the book or so and uh, what it had to say. And I was practicing as best I could. I began to sponsor a lot of men. And there were some things that showed up to compete for my recovery. And the bad news is those things went out. Now, by the grace of God, I never did drink or drug or go back to any of that again. But what happened to me was my conduct inside of Alcoholics Anonymous began to show up as described in step four, part three of our book. And it's also described on the bottom of page 80 to the bottom of page 81 of our book. Now this uh, came on me in a way that I never expected. I tried to fight it off. I tried to do everything that I could to make it stop. And I just couldn't do it. I started living with a lot of secrets inside of the fellowship. I knew I was on dangerous ground. What I would do, I would return to the fellowship. I would try to work the steps. I would go back through the steps to try to get rid of the obsession. It'd go away for a little while. It'd show up again and again and again and again. Now, a lot of people knew about this, but, you know, about that time, I met a lady in Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and we got married. We had an Alcoholics Anonymous wedding, and, and it was a beautiful relationship, and it still is to this day by the grace of God. However, there was a whole lot of hurt and a whole lot of things that went on. During those years, you know, I got sober. I learned the big book. I thought inside and out, at least I could talk it to you. But uh, there wasn't a whole lot of living it that was going on during that time. So what happened was, you know, I started speaking on different circuits. I started going to uh, Joe and Charlie. In fact, Charlie ended up being one of my earliest mentors in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and he taught me the book a, a whole lot. And I had an experience working with Charlie. But he passed away, and then Joe passed away. And whenever I spoke at Joe's funeral on, in uh, 1995, December of uh, not 95, but uh, 2015, I'm sorry. Um, at that point, you know, I began to speak at a lot of different conferences and things like that. And we were doing a lot of book studies, me and a guy named Jim B, who has been through this work as well. But what happened about 18 or 19 or 20 months ago? In the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, I bottomed out in a way that I never had before emotionally. I went through a terrible time, and uh, it was self-induced. And, you know, I tore a bicep at work, and they put me off for a little while. And whenever they did, they gave me some stuff to take care of the pain with that. And I began to use that, and my head began to get very squirrely again. And what ended up happening was I, I got my nights and my days mixed up, and um uh, I looked out one night, there was a man out by my pickup with a flashlight at two o'clock in the morning. And so I went outside to address this man, you know, and my first thought, because by now my mind is starting to get very squirrely from what I'm taking for this pain. And, uh, and I get very crazy and I start threatening him and, uh, and I tell him, you know, if you, if you'll just come over here in the light where I can see you, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take care of you. And then I thought to myself, oh man, you're in a cast in your right arm. There's no way that you can do that. And so the insanity in my mind with absolutely no alcohol in my body at 23 or more years sober, I went inside of the house and got a pistol and come back out. 
he began to shout at me from across the way, but he was hid in the dark and I couldn't see him. And I kept trying to coax him out and coax him out and he wouldn't come out. And so what I did was I just pointed the pistol aimed and squeezed at where the voice was coming from. And, uh, and, were all over this neighborhood at three o'clock in the morning. It was uh, it was the most insane thing that, that had ever happened. Um, just don't drink, go to meetings, huh? <laughs> Not for me. I was in a meeting just about every day prior to that. And uh, of course, you know, I needed you to know how wonderful it is. Now, I don't tell you all this to impress you. I don't tell you all this to not like me or any of that. I tell you this because without this work, without this process of the big book step study as I've found it, I'm a dead man inside of the rooms. I'm a dead man. And I, and I know it because there's something about me that is geared differently and I don't understand what it is. But whenever I get into the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I find out exactly what is wrong with me. And so that's what happened. A man that I had been sponsoring, he had went to a, a nearby meeting about 60 miles away. He heard a speaker. He come back and he said, Hey, I heard a man that talks about the book the way that we talk about the book. And I thought, yeah, that's cool. And they said, yeah. And he said his grand sponsor was uh, Don P and he had my attention immediately. Now I'd heard a lot of speakers through the years that had been sponsored by Don P. And so I knew that that lineage was very strong in this work as outlined in the big book. So immediately I said, I need that man's number like right now. And, uh, so he ended up hooking me up with Josh and, uh, you know, Josh and I visited for some time and then we began to move through the big book. And, uh, shortly thereafter, I ended up with Mike and, uh, and what a great relationship that has been, you know, Mike was very good for me because there was a lot of things that I had to stop doing, uh, right away. One was to get away from Facebook because that's not good for me at all. And, uh, you know, I can remember him telling me one time, uh, you know, if you don't have that deleted, don't call me back. And we were set to talk later that day. And I thought, my God, you know, but anyway, what we did is we started moving through the process of the big book and thank God, thank God I'm not in jail because, you know, I've shot at this man. It's very easily that I could have went to jail. The insanity returned to my mind. I ended up acting out and in a way that, that I never should have. And it ended up being discovered, and it was the worst time ever in my life. I was as broken that day as I was the day that I showed up the very first day in Alcoholics Anonymous. But through the grace of a kind and loving God and forgiving wife and uh, and a lot of people that turned their back on me in the fellowship, they really did, and probably rightfully so. But there was a few people that stood by me, and those were the people that I needed in my life at the time. And so as I began to move through this work with Mike, you know, we, we got into, uh, you know, we went through the forwards, we read through the forwards and, you know, for me, I'd read the book so many times I'd read the book, Charlie and all these guys. So I, I thought, man, this isn't doing anything for me. In fact, this is pretty crazy. And, uh, but there was a whole lot of things that I seen that I hadn't been doing. We got into the doctor's opinion. We looked at the phenomenon of craving. Uh, we, we looked at, you know, different examples of how that happened in my life. I have absolutely no reservation that once I put alcohol or anything inside of my body, it triggers something that demands more of the same. And the book calls that an allergy, a phenomenon of craving. So it's just like this morning after almost 27 years of being sober, I could sit here with a bowl of whiskey in front of me and wash my hands in that. And I promise it wouldn't hurt me one bit. But if I put that in my mouth and swallow that down into my body, something's going to happen to me that does not happen to the normal man. And I am going to crave and crave and crave and crave. So if the only problem was just go to meetings and don't drink, I should have been okay a long time ago because until I put alcohol in my system, I do not trigger the phenomenon of craving. And if that were the only problem, the only thing I need to do is stop drinking. I should be okay, but I'm not. Anytime I stop drinking, I'm not okay because this thing shows up and it's very mad. It's upset. And it's your fault and it's their fault and it's everybody's fault and somebody's going to get hurt. And that's just the way it is. And so from the doctor's opinion, you know, Mike, uh, he read the book, he read the book to me and, you know, and at first I thought this is the craziest thing that I've ever seen. And, but as we're going through this, you know, I'm, I'm looking at these chapters and I'm beginning to understand that there's, there's so many things that if you put this in the first person that, uh, that I've missed all these years that I've been going through this book. I mean, my God, I've been holding studies with groups and doing all of this stuff and I'm sicker than I've ever been in my life. What is wrong with me? And so we get over to uh, Bill's story and, and we move over to page eight and we see where he takes the first step where he talks about the loneliness, the despair and the quicksand and all the stuff stretched all around him. And, but we see shortly after that, that Bill drank again. And that had been my experience over and over. 
we see where Evie showed up and then how Evie brought the message to him and how Bill had the second step experience sitting in his, at his kitchen table drinking that day. He returned to Towns Hospital and he worked the steps and he recovered. And then that was an inspiring story for me. And, you know, that was a way that I had never really looked at it before. And so, you know, when we got through that, you know, we began to look at there is a solution in our book. And thank God there is a solution for me. There is a solution, not a bunch of solutions or a different solution. There is a solution. But the one thing that I'd never noticed in all the years and all the studies that I went through reading that chapter, studying that chapter, trying to share it with others, the one thing that I've never seen is exactly what ended up happening to me. That chapter introduces us to two powers. It's going to talk to us about the power of the fellowship to support us. And it's going to talk to us about the power of the spiritual experience to heal us. Now, I'd had a spiritual experience, but it says haven't had. It doesn't just say had, it says haven't had. And I haven't had one in a long time by that point. But, uh, you know, that's something that I'd never seen where he talks about, you know, the feeling of shared in a common peril. That's only one element in the powerful cement which binds us. And he's talking about the fellowship. But those next words are probably life-saving for me because he says, that by itself would have never held us together as we are now joined. The tremendous fact for every one of us is we have a solution, a way out. And he goes on to talk about that's the brotherly and harmonious action that the good news that the book carries. And so by now it's got my attention. I'm seeing things that I've never seen for the first time in 27 years. And I diligently studied this book over and over and over. Uh, whenever you got to page 24 of the book, you know, one of the things at the bottom paragraph, it says, when this sort of thinking is fully established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, he has probably placed himself beyond human aid. Now, if I place myself beyond human aid, then the fellowship has brought me as far as it's going to be able to take me. Thank God for the fellowship. Thank God for you people. Thank God that you were there to pick me up every time that I hit the dirt with my conduct and the other things that I had going on in my life. But I just couldn't understand why not going to meetings and working the steps was not taking care of what I had going on with me. So what I did understand, and I heard a man say it to me one time, he got tired of hearing me talk about it. And he said, I'll tell you what, son. He said, uh, telling yourself that you're going to work the steps and get over lust or get over drinking or get over whatever it is. It's kind of like telling yourself, I'm going to drink whiskey tonight. And I'm going to tell it exactly where it's going to take me and what we're going to do. He said, has that ever worked for you? And I said, no. And he said, well, it's not going to work with this either. You don't tell this process what to do. You do the process and wherever God leads you is wherever you need to be. And thank God for that, because today it's led me to a place that is indescribably wonderful. Just like the book talks about I'm no longer sick. I'm no longer insane in those areas in my life. I've been able to make all of my amends, but one amends. And there was a bit, there, there were some big ones. There really was uh, a lot of hurt. And uh, that's something I'll share about here in a little bit. But, you know, one of the things was Carl Jung had talked to a man named Roland Hazard. And God, his name by itself was insane. Roland Hazard. That's kind of what I've been in the fellowship. I've been a Roland Hazard, you know, through the years. And, uh, but anyway, you know, Carl Jung had a talk with him and he told him, he said, you know, here and there once in a while, we've seen guys like you recover, not very often, but once in a while. And he said, you know, they, they appear to be in, in the nature of a huge uh, displacement, rearrangement, attitudes, ideas, and emotions. And he goes on to say, this was once the guiding force, the lives of these men are now suddenly cast to one side and a new set of all this stuff comes in and begins to dominate them. So I'm starting to see now that the fellowship has brought me as far as that it's going to bring me. And that if I don't have the spiritual experience outlined by this big book step study process that's in this book, I'm going to return to drinking. But before I do, I'm going to get very insane and I'm going to hurt a whole lot of people just like I did whenever I showed up here. And so, you know, on page 27, he describes it a little further. He talks about it more. Mike and I moved into uh, the chapter more about alcoholism. That was all about insanity. You know, it gives us four examples there. You know, the man of 30, Jim, uh, the jaywalker. It also talks uh, about Fred's story. And so, you know, the insanity 
that goes on with me is just, it's unbelievable without the spiritual experience. And I could have been sober for a long, long time by then. And so I seen that there were certain times whenever I would work the steps, I'd be in the fellowship and I'd be working with others and I'd be doing all the things, you know, I'd get a little reprieve, but anytime that I would slack up on that whatsoever, the insane idea would hit my mind that it would be okay to act this way today. And I would end up doing that based on something that times that I did not want to do. And it was just like, everything else in my life. It was just like there was a craving beyond my mental control. And I could stop it. And nobody really knew this, you know, because, you know, I'm in a lot of different states. I'm doing this and this, but whenever all that happened, that happened right inside of, of uh, my town, inside of my group. And it was a terrible thing. A lot of people got hurt, even my wife, especially my wife. So anyway, you know, we read through that and, and I began to see the insanity. Uh, whenever I seen the insanity and I'd read that for so many times before, but when I seen it that time, I absolutely understood the need for the spiritual experiences to describe on page 25 and page 27 of the book. You know, I know Bill, he didn't, when he wrote this, I'm pretty sure he didn't like the idea of the spiritual experience any more than a lot of us did. Uh, you know, I, I know that because I, whenever I read his story there on page 12, you know, it talks about, you know, he resisted the thought of the czar of the heaven, however loving and sweating they be. And, and uh, I felt the same way. So we got into we agnostics and, and thank God for that chapter. I think Josh shared uh, beautifully on that yesterday. And, uh, you know, one of the things is I'm without knowledge. You know, I don't really know anything. I, I, I had a spiritual experience, you know, in my first year or so of sobriety. And that was enough to carry me along. I think the one reason by the grace of God that I didn't relapse and go back to drinking through all those years is because no matter what, I always had a passion to work with the next alcoholic. That was a passion. Then it's more of a passion now because today I'm clean in all areas of my life. Thank God. But anyway, we get into this chapter and I see belief in God really isn't even what it's talking about. We don't care if you believe in God or not. It doesn't matter to us. If you believe it, it doesn't say, you know, we came to believe in a power greater than ourselves. It says we come to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore. It's a big difference in those two words. And so whenever I start studying the directions that's laid out in we agnostics, what I see is lack of power is my dilemma, not lack of belief, not lack of trust, not lack of faith, not lack of any of that lack of power. That's my dilemma. I've been disconnected from this power because I'm running around in the fellowship and I'm telling you all these wonderful things that I've done. But I'm not telling you anything that I did because I'm not living in steps 10, 11, and 12. How could I? I absolutely went back to sleep inside of the fellowship. And when I did, I disconnected from the power and the insanity returned to my life. And it showed up in another way other than alcohol. And that was my story. That's exactly what happened to me. So we got over to page 47. There was a spiritual terms exercise there. That wasn't hard for me at all. A lot of people have trouble with that. I'm born in the South religion and is run down your throat from the time you're big enough to uh, be carried in. And, uh, and I hated it. I absolutely hated it. And I hated the word Jesus Christ. I hated the word Holy Spirit. I hated the word son of God, the begotten, the, the favorite. You know, my mother, there was somebody else. You know, I had a brother and he was the favorite. <laughs> and rightfully so by the, by my behavior, but, uh, you know, I didn't like that. And all that went into those spiritual terms. So when I honestly got to ask myself, what did a lot of that stuff mean to me? It's described there on 47 in the exercise. I really didn't even know what a lot of that meant for me. I didn't know here I am fighting my ego all these years. And I don't even know why I don't really know why, uh, you know, what does the word Jesus honestly mean to me? Well, death, you know, he got beat, eats this, this. So anyway, that, those ideas have changed, and today I accept many things that I could not accept then on faith, just like it talks about. I had that experience. We got over to page 52. He had me to list the bedevilments, and uh, that was an exercise that was just unbelievable there. As I wrote those down and I prayerfully looked at that closely, you know, there was a lot of things that I began to see. Was I having trouble with personal relationships? Oh, my God. I mean, it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out, you know, that I'm the man that wanted to be in charge, and there I was around insane well thankfully the power lies within and the way out is through and i'm not going to be able to skirt around this anymore i'm going to have to walk through some of the things that i did i'm going to have to squarely look at the defects that caused my failure i'm going to look at the parasite called self and i'm going to see how it lives through me and i'm going to see that pretty quick so if there's not something greater than me I'm dead and I know it. And so when we get to page 55, it says, you know, we clear only the ground a bit if our testimony helps sweep away prejudice 
enables you to think honestly, encourages you to search diligently, which is in step four. And it goes on to talk, you know, about the great reality. We found the great reality deep within ourselves, And so there was somewhere that I never had really, really looked. Now I'd scratched the surface with that. I'd written four steps before. And so I knew what was coming. I did. But I didn't know to the extent that it was coming with this big book step study process because it's much different than anything that I'd ever done. And I don't know that yet. I'm still thinking I know everything. So I hear a lot of guys running around the fellowship. I hear a lot of people, they go around and they say this, I found God. By the grace of God, I found God in Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, that was not my experience. My experience is outlined on page 57 of the book in the very last sentence. It says, when we drew near to him, through this big book step study process, I drew near to him because I seen the insanity in my mind. If I can't be restored from that, I'm, I'm dead. And I know it. I'm dead sober. And uh, because it's going to lead me to drink. And I know it. So, but anyway, it says, when we drew near to him, he disclosed himself to us. So I didn't find him. He disclosed himself to me. And that was my experience. And so by now, I'm starting to feel a little bit of peace uh, come on. But there's still a whole lot of shame and guilt. So we move into how it works, which is steps three and four. It tells me in the very beginning of that chapter, whenever I look at, you know, two kinds of people that are not going to make it. It says, you know, those that do not recover. Well, if we don't recover here, there's only one other option. We're going to die, or at least that's how I read it. And it says it's those that cannot or will not completely give themselves to the simple program. And we'd read it every night. It's not that I don't want to. It's, it's just my experience shows that every time I've tried, I've always failed because something else will show up. And uh, that's exactly what happened. And so, you know, we move over and, and we start to take a look at the man described on page 60 and 61 of the book. And I want to keep an eye on this guy because this is the guy that lives through me. This is the self. This is the guy that always shows up, steals my joy. It cuts me off from, uh, from the sunlight of the spirit. And there I am acting out on whatever it tells me to do. It's the insanity. So anyway, we get to page 62 and I see, and, and it's like Josh described yesterday, Selfish self-centeredness, that is the root of my trouble. That's the root driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. And that's exactly how my life swings every time that I get into self, self-delusion. I start lying to myself. It's your fault. It's their fault. It's, it's not me. You know, uh, self-seeking, uh, you know, what am I looking for here? What do I really want out of this situation? You can bet it's something you know, but at the end, it always ends up the same. I end up in self-pity. And there I am one more time, hopelessly defeated myself again. Now, from this point of the book, it's not going to talk about alcohol very much anymore. For, to me, in my experience with this work, it's not going to talk to me a whole lot about conduct and acting out. I mean, there's some things I'm going to have to look at there. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying now it's going to talk to me about what the root of the trouble really is. And the book tells me that's self. That's the parasite. And my problem is I have identified the self. I have attached to self. I have latched onto that. I have thought that I was the self. I thought it was me, but it's not. Lust and all that stuff, it's all soldiers of self. And that's something that is much greater than me. And it's going to take something much greater than it to overcome it. And so I'm going to get my first glimpse of that now in step three. And so I look at turning my will and life over to God as we understood him. And uh, thank God it says as we understood him, because I hear people in meetings all the time say, God, as we understand him, and our book doesn't say that. It says as we understood him. And what I understood back then is what I understood differently. And as I've been through this process of the big book step study, I can promise you what I've understood has been much different. The promises on page 63 was beautiful. Josh said it yesterday. It's an open-ended prayer. There is no amen. The amen doesn't come into page 76 after step seven. And uh, so everything that I do moving forward from step three to step seven is going to be done prayerfully. It's going to be done with prayer and action, prayer and action, prayer and action. So really what I'm looking to do here is I'm going to make a covenant with God this time in a way that I never had before. I don't even know what covenant meant at that time, but I tell you, I do today. And uh, I'm going to connect one of the things that kind of frightened me is that could I entirely or utterly abandon myself to him this time? I'd been through that step many times. I'd had great experiences with that step over and over. But could I utterly abandon myself to him and go through the rest of this work? Because I'm going to have to have this. And so this is exactly what I've done. Mike and I took the third step. 
we moved over to page 64. We got to the directions to making the fourth step. Here, I'm getting ready to draw columns. I'm going to do all this, do all that. We start reading through the directions. He said, where do you see? I don't. So we're not interested in a column. All we want is a list. Prayerfully, make the list. And then call me. So I call him back. I said, my God, you know, there's 600 names here. You know, I'm in my 50s by now. And he says, uh, did you do it perfectly? I said, yeah. He said, you did right. And so I thought, okay, you know, we'll just move on through this process. Well, we move into the instructions for the cause listed at the bottom of 64. In 19 words or less, you know, I wrote the cause as the example gives there on page 65. I don't need to write the book here, what they done to me. I, 19 words or less is sufficient. And so that's exactly what I've done. But he hit me with something there. He said, one name, one page. I said, one name, one page. Why? Why would you do that? And then it dawned on me, you know what? You're the one that asked him for help. It wasn't the other way around. So I did exactly what the man told me to do. One name, one page. 600 pages later, I come back. Okay. We moved into uh, column three. We look at what, what had been hurt, threatened, injured, or interfered with inside of me. I began to look at those things, and I could absolutely see what was going on. This is what's happening to me. It's not them. It's not what they've done. It's this. I react based on this, and the next thing you know, I'm crazy. So we get over here to, you know, we read through the next page, and it tells me about seven times on that page on 66 that anger will kill me if I don't get free of it. Seven times on that page, he writes it in different words. So anyway, we get to the top of 67, there's the sick man prayer. And so the, what I'm to do is, is I'm to pray my list. And I need to do that. And I need to have a whole bunch of forgiveness before I move into this next column, which is going to be listed on the back of those. No wonder he said one name, one page. That work goes on the back of the page. Where have I been selfish? Where have I been self-seeking, dishonest, and frightened? So that's exactly what I've done. I prayed the list. And it talks about having the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we cheerfully grant a sick friend. My grandson was in a hospital in Norman, Oklahoma, dying uh, when he was four years old. There was something that happened to him. His stomach extracted. And he was just absolutely dying. And it, it scared us to death. I can remember praying like I never prayed for anybody in my life that day. And one of the suggestions was, why don't you take him out of the hospital bed that day and put each man on that list in that hospital bed? And why don't you pray for that man the same way you prayed for that boy that day? And let's see if we can't find some forgiveness here. And then we can move on. The book doesn't say, look for your part. I hear that all the time. My part, my part. The book doesn't say my part. It says my mistake. Self, the parasite that lived through me, has enabled me to make these mistakes. I've done it. I'm accountable. I was there. But I'm not it. I'm not the self. And so... I start doing this writing. I start doing these turnarounds. It's what we call the turnarounds in our thinking. And uh, my God, I, I could see it for the first time in my life. All those years, I never done that. I never did that prayer work. I never did any of that writing like that. I never done any of that. Uh, you know, I just check a box or I'll write a little bit or something. But that was the end of that. That's why I figured we'd go through 600 names pretty quick. Months and months and months and months and months of writing inventory before I finally got done. So I finally did, you know, we did the fears and we did the conduct. And I looked at the questions based on the conduct. There was a lot of conduct there, a lot, as I've already told you, that that's been a big issue for me. And so I got all of that down on paper and, and, I, and I took a look at it. I did write a sane and sound idea for, for the future and what it looked like. And I can honestly tell you, as a result of going through this work, and it took months, 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 like I talked about, a couple of years, actually, I believe, I have walked away from that behavior for more than 18 months, and I've never turned back. The obsession for that has been lifted out of me just like the drink was back in 1994. By the grace of God, I have sanity there today, and it's unbelievable. I just, you know, there are times that I'm still absolutely amazed at where that went, but it's gone. The power of God goes very deep. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe you came into AA and never had any more trouble, but that wasn't my story, and that's not the story of a lot of my brothers that are on this call today. Fellas from the East Coast, I ended up, by the grace of God, in those meetings. And I was sitting there listening to those men. They had been through this work. They had been through what I'd been through. And they were healthy and they were sane. And I said, my God, this is where I need to be. And so I latched on to them fellas. And, uh, man, it's been, it's been a great ride ever since. Well, we did the rest of this work as it's outlined. 
I don't have a whole lot of time to break a bunch of it down. I want to get us out on time. But, you know, we did go through steps five. I was set to come to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and do that. And that's about the time that the surgery took place for the bicep that I had torn. So I didn't get to make it to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, but about a month later, Josh's group was celebrating one-year anniversary, and Mike was the guest speaker there. So Mike came a little bit early, and uh, Mike and I sat in a motel room in Claremore, Oklahoma, and spent hours and hours together doing this fifth-step work. And it was unbelievable. There was shame. There was guilt. There was joy. There was sadness. There was laughter. There were tears. Uh, it was pretty intense. It really was. But at the end of it, I felt for the first time in my life I was going to be okay. And uh, I can remember leaving there, going back to my son's house. They were uh, they were going for the weekend. I went back to his house. I, I spent the hour of quiet time, the second half of the fifth step, uh, by myself there. I did exactly what the book said to do. I looked at the stones. I looked at step two. I looked at three. I looked at all of it. You know, had I missed anything, omitted anything, uh, I looked at steps uh, six. You know, I did exactly what it said to do. And, uh, you know, I could I could see by now that, I'm a different man. The man that I walked into those first five steps with was not the man that walked through the next seven. There had been a transformation of character. And uh, that experience uh, described on page 27 that began to happen for me. I did exactly what it said. I got on my knees. I did the seven-step prayer. Mike had me right through the, uh, the fourth step, but sit prayerfully and take a look at step eight. And I did. And a whole lot of names came up a whole lot. And we visited some of them and I called my brother, Josh, and he went through a lot of them with me. And uh, a lot of them, you know, I just needed to clear the air. A lot of it was just based on guilt, not harm. There were some of them that was a lot of harms that I wasn't going to be able to make. And I can tell you, out of 90 something amends, I made 89 of them. And a lot of them were to the women that I'd hurt. Uh, Some of them were dead by now. I hadn't seen them for many years. Uh, the book talks about writing a letter there, you know, it's outlined on page 83, the directions for that. That's exactly what I've done. I've done that with my youngest son. There was amends that I had left from all those years ago. I refused to pay money, making six figures a year at different times and would not pay them people their money back. And uh, you know what? I had to do that in order to get free. And so I've done that. And thank God for that. The biggest amends I had to make was the one that I did not want to make. And that was to my wife. And, uh, you know, I did. And by the grace of God, I never, nobody had ever showed me forgiveness the way that, that, that she did. And so through that, there was a whole lot of hurt and shame to work through, but we have in our marriage is in a greater place than it's ever been today. We are the best of friends. We are. I don't just say that lightly. I, I promise you that that is our story. Uh, there, there is healing that has taken place. So I have one of men's left to make, and it's, it's a pretty big one. It, it's financial. And so I've been afraid to do that. I'm not going to lie. You know, there's been a lot of fear. You know, I could, I could spend a lot of time in jail over that. But I've met a fellow on the East Coast that had, and went together, you know, and sharing this with Mike and a different one. You know, I'm starting to walk toward the light on that very last immense. And so that's something I am willing to do today. I'm just not there yet. Steps 10, 11, 12, I'll finish it up right here. Step 10 is something that I never did in all the years that I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous. I read it. I could tell you about it, tell you how to read it, tell you exactly what it said. All these wonderful ahas in there and wasn't doing any of it. Well, for me, if I don't do step 10, I really haven't done any of the rest because that's steps four through nine daily. If four through nine brought the awakening, then that's what I need to do daily. And so I began to practice step 10 exactly the way that the book has laid it out. Now, I've slacked on some, just like everybody I have, but I've noticed that I'm not really fighting people anymore. I'm not really fighting myself anymore. I'm not really fighting, you know, conduct and all that stuff anymore. I'm just not fighting that. I've been put in that place of uh, neutrality, safe and protected, like it talks about. The problem has been removed. The problem never was any of that stuff. The problem was lack of power. I was disconnected. By now, I'm connected back to the power and I'm living differently. Sanity is the greatest gift that I've ever been given in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, we can be as healthy as we can be and be sick. I can be wealthy. I've had a lot of money in my life through the years in AA and been very, very sick. But if I've got sanity, I've got what the program offers and promises. And that's uh, that's been the greatest gift for me. So the nightly review was something that we looked at. is outlined on page 86. Josh was a big help with that to me as well. And 
you know, for the last 18 months, I have not missed a night of sending that review every night by email to Mike. I send it to a couple other guys as well, because I want more than one set of eyes on that. I want to make sure that this isn't lying today, that the self is not returned in such a way that I can't get free from it. So I want more than one set of eyes on it. And uh, by the grace of God, I have more than one man look at that. The mornings is something that, uh, you know, for, for at first I didn't do a whole lot of. But today I do. And, you know, I, I take that time in the mornings. I, I really do. I practice what it says as we go through the day as best I can. And uh, by the grace of God, what it describes on page 88 is I'm no longer in fear, worry, self-pity, all that stuff. You know, I've walked a free man. I'm transparent today with anybody that wants to know about what happened to me in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've shared that in on many, many, many different occasions. So today when I come to share, it's not to tell you how wonderful. If you're a newcomer, don't let what I've shared here today scare you off. What I can tell you is stay with this work. Because if you're anything like me and you don't, there's a whole lot of trouble to be had. So what's happened in my life since? And I'll close with this. My marriage is in a better place than it's ever been, ever. Closer to my wife, ever my career. I absolutely love my career. It allows me to work with literally dozens and dozens and dozens of guys my son was a heroin addict he has two years clean now you know i've been able to walk through all of that with him our other son who gave us a grandson that i mentioned uh my relationship with them is better than it's ever been today but most of all my relationship with god is the best thing that has ever ever happened is today beyond a shadow of a doubt the power of god goes very very deep it lives within me and i know it it's described on page 132 of our book. We have recovered and been given the power to help others. Today, that's been my experience. Via Zoom, I have been able to sponsor men all over the world today carrying this work. I sponsor almost a dozen guys through this work right now. And people say, my God, how do you have time to do that? If you're like me, you don't have time not to do it. My career allows me to do that, that I can do the reading with the men. I can get in the writing with the men, and we can do it exactly. I just finished a fifth step yesterday. I started sponsoring a man in Iraq the other day, and we're having to use a translator to go back and forth. This is something I don't know how to do, but you know what? I trust that God does, and I think it's not only our duty, but it is our obligation to carry this message to the next man that suffers. So if a man turns up and I've got a dozen people I'm reading with, you bet I'm going to bring him on because Mike had a whole lot of people too, and he didn't let me go, and thank God he didn't because by the grace of God. I recovered. So thank you for allowing me to share this morning. It's good to be here. Thank you for your service, sir. And uh, Mike, thank you again so much for everything. And, and thank you for asking me to speak this year. Glad to be here. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.